had a big question mark coming into places, and we're going to be here two weeks, so what's it going to be like? And everything has just been so perfect for us. Thank you so much for that. Thank you for welcoming us and making us a part of your family, and thank you for all that you do in praying for us and supporting us. This is one of two churches that I can think of that ever took us on before we actually showed up at the church. And uh, so this is a blessing for us to get to know you this weekend and to spend some time with you this week. Please do come by the table. We've got some things in German up here if you're interested in that. We'd love to share a prayer card with you. If you've got questions, just feel free to uh, come by and spend some time talking with us. I do want to ask you to take your Bibles this morning and turn to the book of Isaiah chapter 6. And my question is, is the microphone scratching just for me? It's Okay, I'm hearing a little bit of pop up here. I'm not sure if that's my beard kind of doing weird things with it. We'll figure it out as we go along. Isaiah chapter 6, if you've been a member of God's family for a long time and have spent time in church, been around missionaries, you've probably uh, familiarized yourself with this passage at some point, but it never hurts to look again at the Word of God. And uh, what a powerful passage of Scripture this is. I'd like to invite you to take just a few moments and stand with me as we read God's Word together. Isaiah chapter 6, and we'll read the first eight verses. Beginning with verse number 1, Isaiah chapter 6, it says here in the scripture, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw also the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and his train filled the temple. Above it stood the seraphims, each one had six wings, with twain he covered his face, and with twain he covered his feet, and with twain he did fly. And one cried unto another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the post of the door moved at the voice of him that cried, and the house was filled with smoke. Then said I, Woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for mine eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts." Then flew one of the seraphims unto me, having a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with the tongs from off the altar. And he laid it upon my mouth and said, Lo, this hath touched thy lips, and thine iniquity is taken away, and thy sin purged. Also, I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? Then said I, Here am I, send me. Let's bow for prayer. Lord, we are so grateful to be in your house this morning. What a privilege it is as missionaries to be able to travel from church to church, to be able to see God's local churches being built in the communities where he would have them. And what a privilege it is to be a part of this church family, to be able to spend some time here this week, to get to know the heart of Platte Valley Baptist Church and Pastor Monday. And I'm so grateful that we have this opportunity together this morning to look into your word together. I pray that you'd bless our time, might the Holy Spirit of God work and move in our hearts, and might we leave here encouraged and refreshed and ready to serve the Lord with our lives. And I'll ask it in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. What is the mark of a successful Christian? What is the mark of a successful pastor? I mean, we went to Bible college way back in the old days. Uh, by the way, if you'd like some stories about Pastor and Mrs. Monday, you can come see us later. I'm a little scared to say that because being dorm soup, they probably have more stories about us than anything else. So uh, we'll just maybe stay away from that. 
but, you know, you always want to strive for success. This is an American mentality thing. It's not just prevalent here in Western society in the States. Uh, we see this in Europe as well. Everybody wants to be a success. Nobody wants to be a flop. Nobody wants to go about their life and be seen as somebody that failed. And so we have this mentality in our Western culture, what is it going to take to, to get to the next level? What is success all about? And there are, of course, in our society, in our way of dealing with things, a lot of ways to measure success. I'm, I'm a Brewers fan. It's a baseball team, in case you aren't aware. Uh, they're not very popular, so a lot of people don't know about them. I grew up with the Brewers, and so we don't know much about success. I remember way back in 1982, we actually won the pennant, and then we played the Cardinals, I believe it was, in the World Series and lost. That was the most success we've ever had. And so this year, I, I'm pleased to say right now, I, I got to see a little bit of the game yesterday, the last two innings. We won the game yesterday, and we're leading our division. I mean, I've got to hang on to these small moments of success. And it's pretty easy when you talk about sports, when you talk about the baseball world. Uh, you can measure it based on wins and losses and statistics. There are a lot of easy-to-see marks of success in everyday life. If you're a businessman, you measure your success based on how many things you've sold or how much product you've moved. But then we come to ministry. And we begin looking at churches, and we begin analyzing men of God, and it turns out it's not quite that easy to measure success. Now, don't get me wrong. A lot of people do use the world's methodology to figure out how successful a ministry or a church is. You can look at church growth patterns, and you can study and see how, how to most effectively reach people, and I'm all for those sorts of things. But if you start to measure success in the ministry based on statistics, you're going to get into a difficult place really fast. And I mention this in this context because in the book of Isaiah, we have a book written by a man who was very successful at what he did, although the product of his ministry didn't necessarily show it. What we know about Isaiah, he ministered for about 40 years. At the end of his ministry, tradition tells us that the people to whom he ministered took him and sawed him in half. I don't know about you, but that doesn't feel like a successful end to a ministry. That's not how I want to go down in Oberfrauendorf. I mean, I'd prefer to maybe have our ministry carry on a little bit longer and not be cut in two pieces for what I did. But as you look at Scripture, you can find out very definitely that God considered Isaiah a successful prophet. You say, well, how do you know that? If you begin paging through the New Testament, you will find that there are many quotes from the Old Testament, that men of God in the New Testament, and in fact, Jesus Christ himself, would quote as he, they were speaking and teaching. And, and you know who Jesus' favorite prophet was in the New Testament, who he liked to quote the most? Isaiah. You begin reading through all of the other writers of New Testament letters. You know who was quoted more than any other prophet in the New Testament? Isaiah. So, well, he wasn't a success. They killed him for his ministry. Well, God said he's a success. God used him in a great and mighty way. And when you begin to look at things through God's eyes, you find out that God doesn't measure success based on statistics. He measures success based on faithfulness. And that's exactly what Isaiah was. He was a faithful man of God who went through the highways and byways of the Jewish people saying, thus saith the Lord. And we have in this passage, the scripture we've just read, 
a little bit of background, uh, quite an interesting story, as a matter of fact, of what happened in Isaiah's ministry. Before we get to that, I want to just go over some of his sermons, though, in chapters 1 through 5, just to give us a little bit of an idea of what kind of a preacher and teacher Isaiah was. Now, don't get me wrong, this is probably the kind of pastor we all want, right? This is the kind of sermon we want to hear every Sunday, so let's start it out with the introduction to his sermon, Isaiah chapter 1, verse 4, where Isaiah is speaking, and he says, A sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, a seed of evildoers, children that are corruptors. They have forsaken the Lord. They have provoked the Holy One of Israel unto anger. They are gone away backward. There is a positive message for you. You bunch of do-good, good-for-nothing, dirty, rotten scoundrels, you have run away from God, and you are on the wrong path. And that's pretty much how he starts the book out. But it gets better. He's just getting warmed up right now. Look at verse number 10. Hear the word of the Lord, ye rulers of Sodom. Give ear unto the law of our God, ye people of Gomorrah. It's like, oh, he made a side trip to the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, right? So he's preaching. No, no, those cities have been off the scene for a long time. God's already judged them. He's talking to his own people, and he's calling them a bunch of Sodomites and Gomorrahites. This is a nice, easy listening message that Isaiah is bringing to his people, right? Look at chapter 3 and verse number 9. The show of their countenance doth witness against them, and they declare their sin as Sodom. They hide it not. Woe unto their soul, for they have rewarded evil unto themselves. In verse 11, woe unto the wicked, it shall be ill with him. In chapter 5, in verse 8, woe unto them that join house to house, that lay field to field. Chapter 5, in verse 11, woe unto them that rise up early in the morning, that they may follow strong drink, that continue until night, till wine inflame them. Verse 18, woe unto them that draw iniquity with cords of vanity and sin as it were with a cart rope. In verse 20, woe unto them that call evil good and good evil, that put darkness for light and light for darkness, that put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe unto them that are wise in their own eyes. Verse 22, woe unto them that are mighty to drink wine and men of strength to mingle strong drink. He's starting to get an idea of what kind of preacher and teacher Isaiah was, his ministry, at least at the very beginning, was to go through the country and say, woe is you, and woe is you, and woe is you. You have run away from God. God is going to judge you for your sin. And I just want to throw this out there. That wasn't a bad message. They needed to hear this message. But we come to chapter 6, and I find it, interesting, as we've read the first few verses, we come to verse number five. The very first words out of Isaiah's mouth in Isaiah chapter six, what did Isaiah say? Upon seeing the Lord of hosts. He didn't say, woe unto them. He said, woe is me. What happened in between that changed Isaiah's perspective of things and I think the answer is clear. He spent time visiting with the holy God of heaven. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw also the Lord. And this meeting with the Lord of hosts, this meeting with the holiness that is God, changed and transformed his life. In fact, this is just me speculating a little bit. We don't read a lot about Isaiah's posture in this passage. I think reading other scriptures and seeing how other men of God encountered God, that when Isaiah had this vision of God high and lifted up upon a throne, he fell on his face. 
I find that interesting. In a lot of churches nowadays, you have people that are falling backwards. If you go through Scripture, you'll generally find that to be a sign of somebody that is opposed to God. But in the Scripture, whenever people have a personal encounter with the God of heaven, they always fall prostrate on their face. And in doing that, Isaiah said the only thing he could, woe is me. The next few verses tell us how God changed him. He said, I can't live. Uh, Pastor Monday, you mentioned that in Sunday school this morning, talking about uh, the man in Judges. I, I think it was, uh, his name just skipped my mind, Gideon, who said, I have seen God, I must die now. That's how it works. When you spend time and compare yourself with God, you have no options because you understand how wicked you are. But God took the time to sanctify him and purify him and equip him and changed and radically did everything differently in his ministry. He said, well, what was Isaiah's ministry like post-Isaiah chapter 6? He was still a pretty hard-nosed preacher. He still went through the country pointing out sin, but he began to scatter in a message of hope. In Isaiah chapter 7, he says, The Lord himself shall give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. The Messiah is coming. He shall save his people from their sin. Isaiah 28 verse 16, Therefore, thus saith the Lord God, Behold, I lay in Zion for a foundation a stone, a tried stone, a precious cornerstone, a sure foundation. He that believeth shall not make haste. In my favorite passage, Isaiah 53, Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. And he began to speak of Jesus Christ as the Holy Lamb of God who was going to come and carry away the sins of his people. Isaiah said, you need to get right with God. You have fallen away from God. God is going to bring judgment on you, but a Messiah is coming who is bringing hope to our people. And God changed his ministry. But going back to Isaiah chapter 6, we find Isaiah enjoying communion with the God of heaven. And my picture of Isaiah here is as he's on his face before the Lord in one-on-one -on -one fellowship with God, he hears a voice. And the voice that he hears poses a question, which I find also very interesting, because God does not ask questions wanting to find out the answer to something. He's omniscient. He already knows the answer. So God asking this question is really saying, Isaiah, I have a point I'm trying to get across to you. We'll just call it a moment of self-discovery or something like that. But I, I have something I want to get across. I'm giving you the opportunity to answer the question, although I really do know who I'm going to send. So my question is, I have a job that needs doing. Who can I send to go do this job? Now, can you imagine Isaiah on his face before the Lord? I don't know how you do it in prayer time. You're supposed to pray with your heads bowed and your eyes closed, right? Your hands folded. You're not distracted. You're not looking around. That's what we te teach our kids. And so Isaiah, he's, he's praying, he's communing with the Lord, and he hears the question. You know what Isaiah probably did? He probably peeked. Like, who could he possibly be talking to? I'm the only one here. And, and very quickly, Isaiah realized God is asking this question for his benefit. And so Isaiah did what a dedicated, consecrated, obedient servant of God should do. And he said... What were the words? Here am I, 
Send me. God, you have a job that needs doing. I came to this throne room today, and I found myself unworthy. I found myself unholy. But you came in and changed my life. You've consecrated me. You've purified me. And you have a job that needs doing. I am ready. I am willing. I am available. Lay it on me. What is the job I have to do? And I think this is fascinating. He never found out what his job was. He just said, you've got a job, I'll do it. Okay, when do I start? Where do I go? What, what is it? Are you ready? This is an exciting job he's about to get, an exciting task. Then said he in verse 9, Go and tell this people, hear ye indeed, but understand not. And see ye indeed, but perceive not. Make the heart of this people fat, and make their ears heavy, and shut their eyes, lest they see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and convert, and be healed. (laughs) So God, speaking to Isaiah, says, I've got a mission field for you, my friend. I want you to go and preach my message. Carry my word to people who don't want to see you, they don't want to hear you, They don't want to have anything to do with you. Isaiah, I am calling you to a ministry of, in man's eyes, failure. And you are going to preach and teach, and nobody is going to listen. Thank you for volunteering, though. I'm so glad you've decided to take on this task. say, well, that's not a very good thing. How would you respond? What would you do if God said, I have a task for you to do, and there's no glory, there's no numbers in it, there's nothing that people are going to see as positive, I've just got something I need you to do. I think most of us would swallow real hard and say, Lord, are you sure? God, did you get the right guy? And Isaiah also asked a question. I think God understands human nature. He made us after all. And so Isaiah now, he's volunteered for this task. God has given him the job description, and all of a sudden Isaiah realizes what he's up for and what this job is about, and he asks a question, which is a fair question, in verse number 11. Then said I, Lord, how long? I don't think that's an unfair question. I don't think he's acting in any sort of carnal way. Isaiah is just trying to wrap his head around what it is he is supposed to do with his life. So, so God says, I've got this job. It's not a very flashy job. You're just going to go preach, uh, and they're going to stop their ears. They're going to cover their eyes. They're not going to listen to you. So Isaiah says, fairly, how long is this ministry for me? Like, surely you've got a plan for after I'm done with this part of my ministry. You know, another mission field somewhere else where I'm going to see a little bit better success because that's kind of what I'd like to do. I don't want to go out thinking that the people that I've ministered to didn't want to have anything to do with me. And so God answered his question. You ready? It's about to get really encouraging. Look down at verse number 11 again. Then said I, Lord, how long? And he answered, until the cities be wasted without inhabitant and the houses without man and the land be utterly desolate. And the Lord have removed men far away, and there be a great forsaking in the midst of the land. God said to Isaiah, Isaiah, I have a lifelong ministry for you, but I just want you to do it faithfully. Keep taking my word to my people. They're going to reject it. They're going to turn aside from it, but just keep preaching until there's nobody left to preach to. 
Don't quit. As far as we know, he did. He doesn't ask any more questions. What we know of the prophet Isaiah, he had a ministry of about 40 years where he went through the nation of Israel and Judah and preached the message of God, a message of repentance, also a message of hope. There's a Messiah coming. And after about 40 years of saying, thus saith the Lord, he was tracked down and sawn in half. So that's an encouraging story. How are we going to get missions out of that? Let me just throw this out there. I'm so glad God doesn't call everybody to that kind of ministry. Amen? That would be hard. I, I'm personally convinced we ought to be willing, if he did, to say, yes, here am I, send me and do it. But he doesn't have this kind of ministry for everybody. But he did for Isaiah. But there's one little verse at the end of this passage I'd like to look at. Verse number 13. God is still speaking, and He says, But yet in it shall be a tenth, and it shall return, and it shall be eaten, as a teal tree and as an oak, whose substance is in them. When they cast their leaves, so the holy seed shall be the substance thereof. And at the very end of this conversation that Isaiah had with God, God tacks on something very important. Basically, what he is telling Isaiah is, Isaiah, you're going to have a hard ministry. Isaiah, the people don't want to hear you, but Isaiah, you need to understand that your ministry is a ministry of sowing and planting, and the reaping will come, the fruit will come. You may not see it in your lifetime, but what you are doing is a foundational ministry for the people of Israel and for the people of God. And with that being said, in verse number 1, chapter 7, it came to pass in the days of Ahaz, his ministry carried on. I'd like to go just briefly at the end of our time together this evening, or this morning, to the book of Acts, chapter 8. Acts chapter 8. I generally will take this passage when we preach at a baptism service. Uh, baptisms in Germany are a really cool thing. You saw we do our baptisms in the river. Did you see the date on that? Uh, we had a couple young men that wanted to get baptized before we left to come back for the States. That was the beginning of April. Uh, the water in Germany is cold, uh, and the Lord saw to it. Somehow we found some waders that were insulated, so I didn't have it too bad, but those guys were cold when they went down in the water. But baptism in Germany is a big thing. They invite family. Uh, we do an evangelistic church service for every baptism service, and usually I'll find my way around this passage here in Acts chapter 8, because Germans, or for most Germans, the concept of believers' baptism by immersion is a foreign concept. So this is a great passage, not just for teaching the gospel, but also for teaching what baptism is all about. In verse 26, the angel of the Lord spake unto Philip, saying, Arise and go toward the south unto the way that goeth down from Jerusalem unto Gaza, which is desert. And he arose and went, and behold... A man of Ethiopia, an eunuch of great authority under Candace, the queen of the Ethiopians, who had the charge of all her treasure and had come to Jerusalem for to worship, was returning and sitting in his chariot read Esaias the prophet. Now, you've got to get a picture of who this guy is and what he's doing. We've got an African man from Ethiopia. 
We don't know much about his background. It's possible he had a Jewish background. Uh, it's possible he had heard of Judaism uh, through some way, and he wanted to go find out in, in Jerusalem what was going on. But he was, by all accounts, in the right place at the right time. He was returning from Jerusalem. He had gone there. He had worshipped. He had uh, seen what God was doing there. He had been at the temple. He had seen how Judaism works and functions, and he had worshipped there. And now he's on his way back. And by the way, he's not just any Ethiopian. He is the secretary of the treasury for the nation of Ethiopia. So this is just me and my German mindset. He's driving back in his state-issued black BMW, or being driven, however it was. He's been in Jerusalem, and somewhere along this, in this process, he has picked up a copy of the book of Isaiah. He's got his iPad open, and he's scrolling through. You get it? He's scrolling through his iPad. No, it's just a scroll. <laughs> and he's reading the Scripture in the book of Isaiah, not comprehending what he's reading. And God has ordained and planned, and through his obedient servant, it's all worked out to where they cross paths out in the desert. And so Philip, under the leadership of the Holy Spirit, sees this man and hears this man. In verse 29, the Spirit said unto Philip, Go near and join thyself to this chariot. And Philip ran thither to him and heard him read the prophet Isaiah. And he said, this is his icebreaker question, Understandest thou what thou readest? Hey, hey, buddy, I hear you reading from the Old Testament. Uh, I don't run into this every day, so uh, tell me a little bit. What are you reading? Do you understand everything you're reading? And in verse number 31, he said, How can I, except some man should guide me? And he desired Philip that he would come up and sit with him. The place of the Scripture which he read was this. He was led as a sheep to the slaughter. And like a lamb, dumb before his shearer, so opened he not his mouth. In his humiliation, his judgment was taken away. Who shall declare his generation? For his life is taken from the earth. And the eunuch answered Philip and said, I pray thee, of whom speaketh the prophet this? Of himself or of some other man? Uh, that's what you call in the baseball business a hanging curveball right over the middle of the plate. We preachers don't very often get opportunities like this, so we rejoice when they come up. He says, I'm reading this scripture. He's talking about a sheep. Obviously, this refers to a person. I don't know which person he's referring to. Can you please explain to me what the prophet Isaiah is talking about in this chapter in Isaiah? What did Philip do? Verse 35, Philip opened his mouth and began at the same scripture and preached unto him, Jesus. About 800 years before this story takes place, a prophet by the name of Isaiah was in the throne room of God, spending time with God, getting his task to carry out, and finding out that the job that God had called him to do was not going to be a glamorous one but that all God required with him was to be faithful in the ministry to which he was called. So he did for about 40 years. 800 years later, we read the story of a man coming to know Jesus Christ through the scriptures that God used Isaiah to write. I find this fascinating. You say, why? Because I'm American. And I want to think about things getting done fast. Don't we? 
I don't think in terms of 800 years for our ministry in Oberfraundorf. I'll just be honest with you. But God does. God knows what's going to happen, not just in five minutes or in five years or in 50 years. God knows what is going to happen. And his request of us is that we just be found faithful. And I like to imagine and just kind of play with the thought, what would have happened had Isaiah not been faithful to do God's bidding for those 40 years? Would this Ethiopian eunuch have ever come to the knowledge of Christ? How different would history look? I know God is providential. God can, can move and do things beyond our reason, beyond the scope of us being able to comprehend things. But praise God for a man who was willing to stick it out and be faithful and do what God called him to do. Well, what happened at the end of this passage? As they went on their way, they came to a certain water, and the eunuch said, See, here is water. What doth hinder me to be baptized? And Philip said, If thou believest with all thine heart, thou mayest. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And he commanded the chariot to stand still, and they went down both into the water, both Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when they were come up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord caught away Philip that the eunuch saw him no more, and he went on his way rejoicing. Because one man, 800 years earlier, had been called to a ministry of foundations, of planting, of watering, of doing everything that God called him to do, and he didn't quit. Would to God that we take an Isaiah view of our ministry and of our lives and of the tasks that God's called us to do. Let's bow for prayer. Lord, I'm so grateful for the time that we've been able to spend in your word this morning. I'm thankful for Isaiah and his ministry and for you using him to reach so many people. It's not just the eunuch that was reached with the gospel and the Old Testament, but many, many others. And I'm so thankful for his testimony, a testimony of faithfulness, a testimony of endurance. I pray that you'd help us to have that kind of character, that we wouldn't just be willing to say, Lord, here am I, send me, but Lord, here am I, keep me there. Lord, here am I, help me to continue to do what you've called me to do, even if it gets difficult. And even if we don't see the fruits of our labor in this lifetime, I pray that we would just be encouraged to know that we've pleased God with our lives of faithfulness. And I'll ask you to bless this invitation. Be with your people as the Holy Spirit speaks to them. In Jesus' name, amen.